The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. This show is produced by the American Negotiation Institute, and with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made this the number one negotiation podcast in the world. Hi, my name is Kwame Christian, and I am the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. Here at ANI, we believe that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations, and we are passionate about providing you with the best content that will help you to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, I want to remind you that we offer consulting and conduct trainings, both virtually and in person, all around the world. Our focus is in three main areas. First, negotiation and conflict resolution. Second, leadership. And lastly, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Check the link in the description below to learn more about how we could work with you and your team. And now, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. In your opinion, with the, thinking about negotiation as a process, what is the first step? I think the first step is to think about negotiation as a process. And what that means is that generally, almost most negotiations are continued. They consist of several stages of a cycle. And the cycle is one of preparation, which is what I see you doing mostly on your own, and then engagement. And that's what I see when you're actually directly interacting with your counterpart. And for most negotiations, this preparation and engagement is a continuously going cycle. And some of it occurs almost, you know, instantaneously, because sometimes what happens is that you'll, you'll hear something from your counterpart and you'll need to digest it and prepare in your own mind, you know, what, what your next appropriate response is. Other times it's going to be a more formal staging. You'll do preparation and I see this preparation, real prep, effective preparation is having three components. And then you'll go in to some form of more formal engagement with your counterpart, whether that's a meeting or a telephone conference. And then that will conclude and you'll need to go back into the preparation part of the cycle so that you can prepare for the next engagement. I like the bifurcated approach to the negotiation process, uh, because it's nice and simple. Preparation, engagement, and it's clear as to where those steps are. I've read books in the past where they might have broken it down into six or seven steps, and I'm, I'm confused <laughs> and overwhelmed, so I appreciate the, uh, the simplicity of this approach. Well, I think we've probably all heard that preparation is important, but it doesn't sound as cool or sexy as these, you know, ninja negotiation tactics like look in their eye this way and then use this magical phrase and you'll have some Jedi mind control powers, you know, at, at your disposal. <laughs> well, well, one those tactics are just about always not quite true. I mean, we could talk about the the Bob Cialdini weapons of influence, which are awesome. But I think a lot of it really boils down to whether you're getting a great deal or that you feel awesome about or, or not so much. It comes down to the upfront research that you do in terms of you've really got a clear sense of what are the alternatives out there? What are the numbers associated with things? What's the quality of this opportunity? And you know it well, as such that you will have 
Little regret if you do your research, one, because you will get a better outcome, and two, because you really know what's out there. It's like, okay, hey, this is really a pretty good thing, whether you're negotiating a salary or a car or a home improvement project, you know, you name it. When you're well-equipped with the research, you're there. I remember, Kwame, you had a story about your car purchase. And rather than it boiling down to a really cool negotiation trick, it just boiled down to you having great research up front, right? Exactly. And so that was the three-part car negotiation series where I broke down from the beginning how to prepare for the negotiation, what you can anticipate in the second episode. And then the last one was a recorded negotiation with a dealer. And I almost didn't air it <laughs> because the conversation was so easy because the preparation did all the work. So yeah, I definitely am a proponent of that style of preparation thoroughly. And I would be remiss if I didn't let the listeners know or remind them about the free negotiation guide that they can get. It's an 18-page ultimate negotiation guide that you can get on the website if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide. And I'll put a link in the description too so you can have easy access to guide the preparation. So yeah, we are definitely on the same page, Pete, because preparation is the hidden secret to negotiation, even if it is not the coolest part of it. So how oh, about- I've got to chime in, if I may, with, oh, yeah, uh, go ahead. with, with the car and negotiation research story. So we didn't end up buying this car, but we still don't own a car. But with two kids, it's just a matter of days <laughs> before we... <laughs> we're in Chicago. It's pretty easy to be carless because we're so close to the L train there. But it's getting harder with two kids. It was like, okay, our days are numbered. But we thought we'd take a crack at it when we had the first kid. And so we went to a Toyota dealership. And so, you know, they, they put out some numbers and and I said, oh, well, you know, I see the the blue book range for vehicles of this kind. It was like it was a Toyota Corolla, you know, to be this. And I'm not joking you, Kwame. The dealer, on the, I can't even get this out. The dealer on the other side said to us, blue book? Oh, no. <laughs> With a question mark. And I was like, my brain was so frazzled. I didn't even like process that that really happened. It's like, this doesn't even compute. And no judgment if you haven't bought a car for a while, but the Kelly Blue Book for listeners is like the just like the standard pricing for cars that just about anybody who has bought a car or considered buying a car recently or actually for decades it's been around, you know, has looked at it at one point. So it's very clear that she's familiar with that. And so it didn't even compute in my brain. I forgot it. And then my wife said to me later, Blue Book? And I was like, what? Yeah, that happened, didn't it? And, and it was so mind blowing. <laughs> it's like either she's unaware of the Blue Book and it's okay. I'd say if you're the average American to have not heard of the Blue Book, no judgment. But I mean, if you're in the car business, like that's so standard. And it really torpedoed her credibility. Mm. It's like, I think that you are deceiving me right now if you are feigning to not know this or her credibility is torpedoed because it's like, well, you don't know this and you should. Are you really that knowledgeable about vehicles? Uh, maybe I should talk to somebody else. So mm. anyway, that's an aside, but blue book <laughs> just that's just wild tickles me <laughs> that is incredible yeah but i think that that really speaks to the value of preparation because let's say hypothetically if this was her first day on the job sure then if that was hypothetically the first day on the job in order to prepare she should have talked to a supervisor who had more experience she should have tried to figure out a way to objectively verify the cost of the car and if you look for objective verification of the cost of the car if you just google how to price a car blue book 
will be number one. That'll be right up there. So it's really an indictment of a lack of preparation. And the lack of preparation had a negative impact on her authority and credibility. And since you mentioned Robert Cialdini's book, The Principles of Influence, which is, I would suggest, recommended reading for you listeners of the podcast, authority is one of the six principles of influence. And if you lose that up front, it's going to be really difficult for you to be persuasive. So again, <laughs> preparation Thank you, Kwame, is key. for bringing it back to uh, something that's valuable. Whereas I was just like, get a load of this crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> but and that's true. And I think it's true that if you know, if you've done your research, you have an extra dose of authority that you're conveying as well as confidence going in in terms of like, okay, I'm not going to be pushed around. I can walk at this number and feel great about it. And that is picked up on the other side. And I think that... The other side, your counterpart, their negotiation is going to be shaped by their perception of how well you've prepared. It's like they're going to think, can I pull some stuff with this guy <laughs> or can I not based upon the extent to which they are demonstrating they know their their stuff? Exactly. Yeah. It's One of the things that you mentioned earlier was there being three parts of the preparation process. Can you tell the audience a bit about that? Yes. I like to characterize them as research, rehearse and review. So I talk about the three R's of preparation. Okay. And so research, I feel like that one is pretty straightforward in that we're gathering information. But can you go a little bit deeper into actually how you do that as a as kind of like a systematic approach to the research you do? Well, you need to do research on two parties. One is yourself. You really have to understand what you're trying to do through this negotiation. What are you trying to achieve and why? Because as you look at the whys, it may give you insight that will allow you to add value and take advantage of opportunities that arise when you're talking to your counterpart. So you really want to have a good sense of what you need out of this relationship or out of this negotiation and get very clear on that. A second component of that is understanding what standards apply to the situation. So you want to make sure that what you want to get out of this is realistic. You can be ambitious in terms of what you want, but you still need to be bounded by what market realities may be at play. And then the second strong part of the research that you want to focus on is to get into your counterpart's head as much as possible. So to really learn about that person, that individual, if there's a cultural, you know, any cultural issues that you need to be sensitive to, understand what they are. And also, during that period of time, you're not talking to the person, so you you aren't necessarily getting direct feedback, but you can start creating what I call our hypotheses about the person. And I think it's really important when you look at your counterpart, both the person and if, if it's a larger organization, the organization as well, that you are focused on making hypotheses rather than assumptions. And Kwame, I think you understand the difference that that is in terms of your approach then to the situation. I do. And that is a brilliant, a brilliant nuance. And so for the audience, when you say the difference between hypotheses versus assumptions, what exactly do you mean there? Well, with assumptions, we're wedded to them. They're true. We know it in our heart and in our mind. All of our assumptions are completely true. That's how we deal with them. That's what we think of them. Whereas when you're dealing and talking in terms of hypotheses, that's what scientists do. And scientists 
have a thought, a hypothesis about something, and then they actively look for information to either support or, you know, cause them to change their hypothesis or adjust it. The point about hypotheses is that there's no ego involved. The point is that what you want to do is find out what reality is going to tell you about the accuracy of this hypothesis, and then you make adjustments to it based on what you what actually happens. Let's jump into it. So what are the three things that we should focus on, three major things that we should focus on when preparing for our negotiations? Oh, sure thing. And I couldn't help but turn it into a little bit of an acronym. And Kwame, my hat's off to you and your show prep in terms of getting your guests to really you know, streamline it a bit. So I'm going to call it three things. First, the numbers of the matter. Secondly, the alternatives available. And thirdly, the quality. We might say that spells knack. I like it. You, you'll have a knack for research if you follow these three things. I just made that up. How's that feel? Is that too corny? I love it. No, I love it. I love it. (laughs) One way or another, it's not forgettable. (laughs) Cool. So yeah, when it comes to the numbers, I mean, I think that, well, first you just want to know the basics that are out there. And I think when it comes to, for example, a salary situation, this is probably not news to folks, but you want to get a sense for a given position in a given geography what are the figures out there? And there's some great websites, you know, you got your Glassdoor, you got your pay scale, you got your salary, you got your comparably.com is another one I really like to also assess cultural elements, you know, even above and beyond the numbers, and just sort of get a sense of what's out there. I have saved, for example, some really great money on home renovation things just by going to homeadvisor.com. And they can give you what they call their true cost guide to tell you what, what should it cost to put in a new garage door or to you know rewire something or to put in carpeting or, or whatever. And then, then you have it right there. And so I found that so handy because from that point, I can then I can get a number and I can say, hmm, that sounds high based on HomeAdvisor. I guess I'll call someone else. And then I just kept doing that until I got a better number. It's like, okay, that sounds about right given HomeAdvisor. And that's that. I've also been surprised to learn from other real estate investors. Like the first few times this happened, I'd be kind of spooked. I'd get like, you know, maybe four different plumbers to give me a bid on a project in terms of getting some in-unit washer-dryer action possible, right, on a rental unit upstairs. And so I'd be spooked that one number of the four would be maybe half that of the other three. Mm -hmm. I'd say, "Uh uh-oh, is there something wrong with this number? Is this guy cutting all sorts of quarters? Am I going to have a pipe explode and have a real big mess? And as I chatted with folks, they told me, oh, no, that is actually quite common that I will get one number that is about half that of the others. And and sure enough, I've seen this time and time again for folks who are doing, say, a deep cleaning of the apartment unit before the next person comes in. Like one is half of the other and is just as good or even better. So that's what Mm. I'm talking about when it comes to the research and the numbers is that sometimes there's a published source of those numbers like those job websites or or homeadvisor.com. And other times you gather those numbers yourself by calling perhaps 20 potential vendors so that you are putting a picture together and calling your friends, checking out the Facebook. Hey, what did this cost you? And then you've got a great picture. So you are going to feel strong and confident walking in there and saying, oh, yeah, $4,000 for that plumbing job? Forget that. That makes sense. Yeah. And what you're seeing here is, and it speaks to what you said earlier about the fact that research gives you confidence because you know what you're going to say during the conversation. If somebody gives you an offer 
that is just outside of the scope of possibility or does not work for you, you can quickly and confidently say no. And just think about the impact that has on the other person persuasively. So if somebody says, can you do this number? And you definitively say, no, unfortunately, that doesn't work for me, but let's continue talking to see what works versus can you do that? Um, uh, you know what? I, I don't think that'll work. Oh, okay. So when I hear that, <laughs> that's like there's blood in the water now. So I'm going to laser in on that and keep on pushing because by your response, I know it's in the realm of possibility. So it's going to take me a lot more to get off that position because just because of the lack of confidence you had, I believe it's possible. Absolutely. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. You go into the next step, which would be active engagement, and you can test those hypotheses by asking questions and being curious and trying to learn in the midst of the negotiation. I think that distinction is brilliant, and it does a great job when it comes to putting ourselves in the right mindset for these negotiations. I agree with you. And it feeds then, if you're dealing with hypotheses, I think it also feeds into the second part of preparation, which is rehearsal. So when I talk about rehearsing, what I mean is, is a variety of things, but part of it is even doing what good athletes do, all right? What athletes do is they visualize whatever they're doing, their swing or, you know, the game or how they're going to get the ball from one end of the court to the other. And as they do that, as they think in their own head, all the ways, you know, what it's going to take to get the ball from where they are to where they, the basket or then... They're thinking about all the different things that can happen along the way, all the things that can go wrong. So if they've got a defender on them, you know, who might be interested in fouling them, how they defend against that. They also can think about if this, you know, way to the basket, if going down the left-hand part of the court isn't available, how do they, you know, get to the right-hand court or how do they get the ball to a player that's on that 
out of the court. So that whole process of visualization and as detailed a process as possible is going to help you be much more actively prepared for the negotiation. And once you visualize and thought about all the things that can happen, what your reaction and response is going to be and how you're going to you know, respond in a constructive and effective manner, that frees up bandwidth in your mind when you're actually engaging with your counterpart so that if something happens that you didn't plan for, it doesn't panic you because you have bandwidth for it. It's not, you know, it's a surprise, but you've already figured out all these other things and it probably is going to be like one of the things you've already figured out. Absolutely. And I think that's an underutilized technique when it comes to negotiations in particular, but our professional lives in general. I always find it fascinating that professional athletes almost seem to take their craft a little bit more seriously when in reality, what professional athletes do is they're entertainers. They're in the entertainment industry. You and I were both attorneys. You have doctors, nurses, and other professionals who have jobs that carry a lot of consequence, but it seems as though we aren't as serious, and maybe not serious, we aren't as intentional about the preparation for the, our daily activities. And I think visualization is one of the most powerful techniques we can utilize. And when it comes to resistance, it's critically important because a lot of times you see people have negotiation strategies that are essentially based on hope. Um, I'm going to say these things and I hope it works. Then if it doesn't work, then we really don't have much of a, a strategy. Or if we don't rehearse appropriately, like you say, we're not prepared. And it just reminds me of the, the saying, the words of one of America's greatest philosophers, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that is, of course, Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> so if you visualize that punch, it makes it a lot easier for you to take it and roll with it in the midst of the conflict or negotiation. I agree with you completely. What is it that is missing in negotiation today? Well, it's been fascinating for me in, in this long journey of studying negotiation, doing negotiation and observing negotiation, that so much of the attention we traditionally place on negotiation most people want to hear about strategy and tactics, what I call, how am I going to get what I want? And then there's been a lot of attention on the what if, or the plan B, or the BATNA. What happens if I don't reach an agreement? And then as time has moved on, then we've really focused a lot on what we want. All the targets, all the statements we want to make, the issues, what we want and what they want. That's also been very traditional. But what I have found that even if someone has their how and their what and the what if really down, many times they forget about the why. And I'd say in the last 10 years, there's been a lot more focus on the why. What, what gives me meaning and purpose and why am I, do, do I have certain interests? But the piece that I fundamentally really looked at when I finished teaching and had more time to really look at the research, the current new science research, I found out that we spend very little time on who we are. So I'm finding that focusing more on who we are and who our counterpart is, is so critical in helping us to actually know more of what we want and how we're going to behave when we get into a negotiation. And when you say who we are, what does that really mean? So what I love about this piece is that because of what we're learning in the world of, as I said, new science, neuroscience, 
in quantum physics, in the stuff on coherence, mind, body, spirit, energy of the body, that I find that once we understand and actually have a deeper awareness, some would call it a, a mindfulness or an attention to what I will call the, our five human dimensions. And I can talk a little bit more specifically about that as we move forward, uh, but I, I'll say briefly that knowing who we are on all of those human dimensions and understanding our cultural perspective, our cultural values, our, our cultural perspective actually helps us to become much more empathetic to understand who our counterpart is. And many times I find that the best negotiations break down because we really don't understand that as who, we are seeing a different story of the picture or of life or of what we need. And we can actually uh, alienate someone else when we just don't even understand what their perspective of their take on life is. Right. This is really interesting. And, and let me play the role of devil's advocate. Let me put on my skeptical business negotiator's hat on. And so let's say, listen, I've been negotiating for 20 plus years. I've been getting great deals. And Karen, you know who I care about? I care about me. And I care about my strategies and my tactics and just kind of imposing myself on other people. Why should I change my approach? What's in it for me? Well, first of all, I would say that if your strategy is working, then that is going to be what you will continue to do. Part, primarily, what I often find is that strategy isn't working. The more, I would say, dominating, the more coercion, coercion and what I would say more egocentric approach, purely self-interested approach, doesn't often work if you're in the context of some important relationships. So, for example, if you're working on a team and you have a project that's due and you're only negotiating and coercing, coercing and dominating others in the project and the project misses its deadline as a result, then it's time to re-examine why the relationship is important and what is your role in it. I would say you move from being egocentric to more sociocentric. That, yes, your self-interest is inextricably linked with your team with your counterparts. So there's a shift in our mindset in terms of our self-interest. This is not to say you're altruistic, that you give up the sense of the self for others. It means that you actually become more realistic, that you are in the context of a social group, a relationship, a team, an organization, a nation state, for example. Yeah. So it's in your self-interest to be able to change your behavior so others are going to cooperate with you to get what you need done. Exactly. You're spot on. Another place where you can prepare effectively is to have an agenda, to have a written agenda. So part of this rehearsing that I'm talking about is having a written agenda. And the reason for that, you don't have to share it with your, with your counterpart. Depending on the negotiation, it may be appropriate to do so. But by having what the points you want to cover written down, you're, again, freeing up mental bandwidth. You don't have to remember. You just don't have to remember all those extra things. And that leaves you with more, more of your mind that you can apply to listening really listening when you're engaged with your counterpart and really hearing both what they're saying and what they're not saying and to understand where the opportunities in the negotiation are to make a deal that's going to work for them 
as well as for you. What we forget is that, you know, we're so busy trying to get whatever it is we feel we have to have in out of this negotiation is that if this negotiation doesn't result or bear results that are going to be satisfactory and ideally attractive to our counterpart, there's not going to be any agreement. Exactly. I think that's brilliant. And going back to what you were saying, focusing on who we are as a person, I think this is a great time for us to transition uh, into those five dimensions of humanity that you were talking to, to us about earlier. Can you tell us about that too? Yes, I have found, and, and I'll give a very quick little history of what happened in terms of my study and why I've decided to include these five dimensions in preparation. I think originally in the negotiation world, we spent a lot of time on kind of cognitive thinking, that strategy and tactics need this very cognitive thinking. So there was a lot of work on the cognitive level. And then as time went on, and this was interesting to me, as I was leaving graduate school, the research on emotional and social intelligence was just coming out. And that actually shows us that we need to pay attention to how we are feeling and then we have to look at how that can impact our behavior. So then I started integrating that material so the emotional level became important in preparation. And then I started finding a lot of material, scientific material and performance material around the physical element, that is brain performance and physical performance, how lack of hydration, how lack of sleep, how lack of uh, calm for our bodies can impact our negotiation preparation and our process. So then I started integrating more of the physical elements, all those things we do in preparation so our physical body is prepared for very difficult negotiations. And then I came into the world of spiritual intelligence and spiritual capital, that this is beginning to be a part of the mainstream literature that that sense of meaning and purpose, what gives me a sense of meaning and purpose for myself that goes even beyond this one negotiation. So I have found that the more that people can prepare, first they look, if they, whether it's a five minute or a five year negotiation, very quickly, can you do a quick scan? How, what is my thinking? Am I thinking in a very scarcity mentality or am I using an abundance mentality? So just that mind shift on your thinking, your cognition. Is the world a limited resource, scary, fearful place, or is it an abundant, benevolent place? Just to start there. Then to look at your emotions. Do I know what my emotions are? And can I manage my emotions so I can help understand others' emotions and help manage their emotions? Then do a quick scan on the social. How do I plan to behave? Do I plan to come out in a coercive, controlling, defensive way? Or do I shift my mindset, align myself so I can be in alignment to cooperate, to listen, to share? And then also, very quickly, think about how do I want to show up in this negotiation? Because what gives me meaning and purpose in the world is to be good to others, to share with others. And that I want to be mindful of that when I go into the negotiation, that I want to be in alignment with my, my values of meaning and purpose in the world. Just doing that puts us in an alignment, and I would say it anchors us to really who we are and what we believe, 
And like I, as I said before, there's so much evidence to show something happens in our brain and in our nervous system that we can align and have empathy for others and to remember to look at those things for our counterparts as well. That's what I mean about the five uh, human dimensions. This is great. And gathering information, what are the things that we need to know about that? Well, Kwame, you know, I think the, and, and, and even let's take even a step back, you know, further from that. I, I think that the, uh, one of the things that, that all of us humans tend to do is that we want to make sure that other people understand our position and they want to understand where we are coming from and they want to, we want people to understand what we want and what we're trying to do. And uh, as, as you've indicated in, in the, the areas that we're going to try to cover here today is talk about is that, you know, what I think is important and what a step that a lot of times we miss is trying to understand the perspective of the other human on the other side of the uh, that we're talking to. Um, and that is that is based on their background, maybe where they're from, maybe their nationality. Uh, maybe who they work for, what their company is, their corporation, you know, if they're a business or whether they're an individual. Um, any of those kind of things, I think, are, are very important. So I think that we need to, one of the things that's very important is to take the time uh, to try to understand to the extent that we can the uh, the person who, who we're involved with. And I think if we can, and, and person or persons that we're, that we're involved with, and I think if we can do that, then I think that that gives us a better opportunity to not only achieve the goals that we try to achieve, but achieve a, a goal that is that is mutually satisfactory to, to the parties and, and, you know, get get somewhere that 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 uh, everyone's going to be happy with or happier with as opposed to everyone being uh, unhappy because no one no one understood each other and people just kind of yelled and screamed and, and you know, pounded the table with their own position without really trying to understand where the other person is, is coming from. So I just wanted to set that as a, as a back, as a bit of a background as part of that. So in doing that, I think that the, the, you know, so, so one of the main skills obviously involved there is, is listening, obviously is, is listening to what they say, because a lot of times people won't tell you directly uh, what it is that they, they want, what they, what it is that they, they need what it is that they're after, but I think if you if your listening skills are are good enough and you've and you've done it enough times, that it can be very helpful for you to try to figure out okay, what's really behind what what's what are the what are the meanings behind the words and what are their uh, what what are their really what's their pain what what's causing them to to be there and what's their motivating factor and so um, asking questions I think is is the best way to do that and listening to the, listening to the responses and asking follow up questions if it uh, uh, if need be, is to is to what really helps to gather that type of information. Yeah, and this makes a lot of sense. And, it- and so listeners, remember, this is a perfect reminder for you to download those free negotiation guides. If you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, you can get access to over 15 free negotiation guides from a basic negotiation prep guide, salary negotiation, how to negotiate as an introvert, how to negotiate for your car, all of them for free at that link. And really, Karen, I think you just, you you gave it away. I think we've been exposed because if people just don't listen to the podcast, but they download the guides and prepare systematically, they'll, they'll get significantly better. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. The last part of preparation is really what you do after engagement. So the review, the last call review is what you do 
I would say immediately after you hang up the phone or you walk out of the meeting, when you're down in the lobby of the building, if you're walking out of a meeting with someone, you know, when you're, when you're out of their presence, you really want to take a few minutes, five, 10 minutes and write down notes about the negotiation you just left. You've got your written agenda so you can quickly go through it and identify what did you, what did you agree on? What, what's open? What follow-up questions do you want to pursue? Your own preparation, the next time you engage, all those things. And what, what worked? What did you notice? Did you, did you realize that when you talked in terms of the value of the organizations working together, the person was leaning forward and engaged? When you were talking about you know, market competition, they seemed less engaged. So what are the things that really got your counterpart's attention? How can you use those as you prepare for the next time you're engaging with them? I love it. I think that's brilliant. And I think we've, for me personally, that's something that I need to do a better job of reviewing afterwards, because when it comes to memory, your memory starts to decay instantly. And so you can't leave it up to chance and hope that you remember. And for you um, as an attorney and with what you do with review, I'm assuming that includes sending a follow up email or message to the, uh, the person with whom you were speaking. Is that right? It can be. Yes. In a way, that's another form of engagement. The review is something you're doing yourself about the negotiation. I agree with you, though, that many times it's very helpful to do that kind of recap summary that reflects your understanding of you know, where there were agreements or possible agreements, what issues still remain open that can provide an opportunity to ask a simple, perhaps follow-up question that'll clarify a point that might not be completely clear in your mind. Because it sounded really good in the room and then you're like, oh, but what about this kind of thing? So I think I always feel that that sending a follow-up is a good idea. And ideally, before you leave the room, it can be helpful if you try and do a recap of what what happened in that after that engagement, what just even before you leave the room, so that you get immediate feedback from your counterpart as to whether you're summarizing things effectively and accurately. That makes sense. Congratulations. You've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.